I know that it's obnoxious when somebody sings the same thing. Hey, there's Stan. As I pressed um, the call <laughs> button, I spilled my matcha all over myself. <laughs> and you're supposed to be the grown-up. I literally, I just did it right now. Are you, are you recording this? I am. Good! I pressed record after I spilled it. Did you damage anything? Uh, just my pants. <laughs> Let me just go get a paper towel. I'll yeah. be right back. You go do that. <laughs> mm. Stan spilled, Stan spilled, Stan spilled the... I don't know what that stuff is. That green stuff. Bum, bum, bum. Stan spilled. Stan spilled. Bum, bum. Stan spilled the green stuff. Stan spilled the green stuff. Yeah. Stan, I really am excited about this topic because what the topic is, but we haven't even told them what the topic is. What is the topic? Yeah. The topic is how to study masters. Um, and we've talked about this before, but I don't think we have had a full-on episode on it. No, we haven't had a full-on episode um, on it. Not as such. How to study masters or, or like how to do master studies. <laughs> we didn't have an outline for this, did we? We're just winging no. this? No. Well, what we, what we did instead of an outline for this one was I, I mentioned in the previous episode that we launched Proco 2.0 beta. So, what I did is I, in the community, I posted uh, a new topic and I asked all the beta testers to post their questions, their thoughts, their stories, whatever, about this topic. And they posted a bunch. So, we'll... Uh, <laughs> We'll mention a lot of their stuff. We'll go through their questions. So that their 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 responses kind of serve as a structure for this this episode. Yeah, I read those questions too, Teresa and Anne and Carlos and a number of people that were uh I, I put I cut out little bits of them to put into my notes. Yeah, me too. I, I included just the parts I want to read. Did you have one you wanted to start with? I did. I kind of have an order. Okay, well if you got an order, let's do the order. Kind of. Some of them are a little random at the end, but I do have some that I want to start in the beginning with. So, yeah, let's start with um, actually not one of the questions. Actually, yeah, let's start with one of the questions. <laughs> God damn it, okay. Charlie, cut that part out. Okay. Charlie, yeah, keep that part in. Ah. Okay, let's start with Anne-Lise uh, Lubier. Okay. How do you pronounce an E that has a little backwards squiggle at the above it? You're asking me? Yeah, yeah, never mind. I thought you were an intellectual. Mm. Okay, her she she posted a a lot of stuff, but the the thing I wanted to read was her question: What's the difference between a study and a copy? It's a very good question. It is, yeah. That's a that's a big one because when I was a student, I did a lot of things that I called master studies, and when I look back at them, they were mostly just copies. I think I got better at it as I went, but when I started doing them, I'm not sure I had the, the, the best mentality going into them. Mentality. Yeah. What I mean by that is I would go into them trying to create a pretty picture. I would yeah. say, I really like this painting. Let me make that too, right? Let me try to duplicate it 
And that is beneficial. Like you're obviously going to learn something from doing that, right? Like you're, you're going to pick up on their patterns, even if you're not focused on it. But it's still a it's still a better approach to pick something specific you like about it and study that. Focus on a, a very specific thing you want to learn from them. Yes. In order to do that, you have to decide what you like about them in the first place. Why is this a beautiful painting? Yes. And when you when you decide what you like about them, that falls into a few categories, which should be part of our structure today. Yeah. What are the categories? Categories would be things like composition and technique and draftsmanship and rendering and, and color. Right. Let's go back to the business of study versus copy. Well, I think that's what it is, isn't it? A copy is you're just trying to replicate something that looks good. A study is some you're doing something specific to study it, to learn a subject. Yeah. Or a concept. And also let's let's do this. Let's caricature the difference. You could copy something so mindlessly mm-hmm. that you learn nothing from it practically. I mean, as Stan mentioned, you're going to learn some things. But I've done a lot of mindless copying. So I know that I can have made a copy and made a copy and made a copy and not learned anything. On the other hand, you can study without copying. In fact, some of the yeah. best anatomy students that I've had, they people who were very accomplished, would hardly draw during the anatomy class when I'd show slides. Both two of them in particular did this. When I'd show slides, they'd go, well, the listeners don't know what you're doing right now. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, they, well I, what I was trying to do for the camera was to show eyes moving around the screen, drinking it in, actively looking, speaking within their own minds about what the name of that thing is, what it's doing, where it's starting and ending, how it changes shape. So there's this active mental activity going on, but practically no movement and certainly no drawing. Now, ideally, I think we want to get them together. That we, oh, by the way, those masters taking the anatomy class would look a long time and then one of them would then suddenly go and then start drawing. Get Uh a pitch. Okay, I've got something I want to make a note about so that I'll remember it, put it down on paper because it's not sticking to me right now as much as it will later. Now, that's to me is a caricature of the difference between where you copy and don't learn and you study, but you don't move your hand around. They weren't drawing. They were paying attention. They were looking at the drawing or the, the anatomy thing. They were analyzing it just with their eyes. And then they had a purpose. And then they went on their page and they approached it with a purpose. I think, yeah, if you combine those two things, it's the best of both worlds, right? Yes. And I think what you just said leads us to the next point, which is, and you mentioned it earlier, it's what are you studying this for? What are you copying this for? Is it because the teacher said to, or is it because there's something you're really trying to extract from the work? There's there's magic in the work. There are secrets in the work. There's skill in the work. How do you get any of that into yourself? You extract it by looking at it, attending to it, analyzing it, discussing it. Oh, that's really useful to have two or three sets of eyes on something, each calling out what they see because people will see things that others don't. Uh, And of course, a teacher's job is to call out those things. How many master studies have you done? Did Did you do a lot? I did countless ones, Stan. Who did you study? 
a lot of Michelangelo for figure drawing. Uh -huh. So that, and, but all, all of those uh, old Italian masters and French and, and Dutch and all of those ones from that era, because I got a chance in 1987 to author a class called Drawing from the Masters. Uh, Vance and Justin took that class a number of times because we could repeat it four times. When, when uh, Vance and I started teaching last year, we wanted to call the class lessons from great masters or lessons from the masters because it's a great way to learn. It has a history behind it. And uh, we, the first semester I taught that class, there were 25 people in there and about half of them were professional artists. And we started copying Rembrandt's, which was a mistake. Why? Because one of the first things that every one of us found out is that we, uh, we suck. We are on a whole other plateau, a dozen level down, le levels down from these great masters. Well, wait, hold on. I mean, wh why is Rembrandt so much harder to study than like Michelangelo, though? I mean, wouldn't that always be the case? If you're a beginner and you're studying a master, you're always going to find out that you suck. There is a difference between Michelangelo and Rembrandt in, in a couple drawings that we copied in particular. Uh -huh. Michelangelo did drawings more slowly with a dry point medium, which is more controllable in some okay. ways than what, what Rembrandt would do these pen and ink drawings. He has one of, I think it's St. Augustine in his study that we tried to copy. And the the dexterity of the pin and the knowledge of drapery and, and external and internal forces and the psychology of what's going on in this guy's head, it is just breathtaking. Mm. And we didn't realize it until it's like hearing a symphony and saying, I can play that on the piano. And then you get out and recognize, no, there's more in there than you know what you're doing. I gotcha. I gotcha. It's like doing a... a a fashion study, maybe. Yeah, yeah, there's another example. That would just be uh, almost impossible for a beginner to do. You, you need so much mileage with the brush before you could even attempt something like what he does that it, there's no point at the beginning yet. It's like, yeah, I, I got what you're saying. That makes a lot of sense. The thing is, there's too many things to think of at once. That's the first point that Robert Beverly Hale brings up in Drawing Lessons from the Masters. Just you're trying to think of many things at the same time, and it's very hard to do that. Therefore, we study one thing at a time, and we'll go to one master for one thing and another master for another thing. So, we, that's, I, I think that's where we begin once we've made the distinction that studying and copying are two different things, mm -hmm. is that we go to different masters for different skills. The next thing that you should ask me is if, I've, if I did studies, Marshall, that was so rude of me. Hey, uh, Stan, when you studied, did you do master studies? <laughs> I did. I did a lot as well. Tell me about him. It was actually really cool. I had uh, someone that commissioned me to do master studies. Really? <laughs> so, I actually got to get paid to do uh -huh. them. I didn't get to keep the paintings, obviously. I had to give it to them. But it's like, I mean, come on. That As a student, that is the best thing you could get is to do. And, and they were supposed, but here's the thing. No, sorry. I'm, I'm calling them master studies. They weren't. These were copies. Master copies. These okay. were master copies because... That the difference that we talked about, where one is to just replicate and just make a beautiful picture, and one is to actually study something. He was paying me to make a duplicate of it, and I did several. I did um, Tucker Smith. I did Howard Turpening. Let me send you a few links. These will include your copies of them. 
Yeah, the links are to the copies that I'm talking about that were commissioned. Yeah, so I'll just show you these. These were the two major ones I did for him. Um, he 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 was like a he liked a lot of Western paintings, but you know the originals of these are just so expensive. So he's he's like, well, can you replicate these? And I was like, probably. <laughs> and I think I honestly, when I look back, I think I did actually a really good job. I'm I'm very proud of these studies. Um, I can never put them in like my portfolio or something. I um, I always have to give credit to the original artist, obviously. Oh yeah, yeah. Which one are you looking at, the green one or the white one? I see a landscape of mountains and horses. Yeah. And people, oh wow, yeah, yeah, I see how this is, this is greatly valuable. Your lights and darks in particular. Yeah, here's a third one. Yeah, beautiful lights and darks and yeah, boy, that's nice. Is that oil paint? That one is kind of a master's copy, but modified. Uh-huh. He wanted me to put him in the painting. <laughs> so, is that him in the front? Yeah. That's him on the horse. And he's happy as he can be. Yeah. So, this is, you know, I call this a study of Red Rock Country. I think it's a turpening one. And I modified it. So, but modifying it was way more difficult, right? Because now I had yeah. to make sure that it fits. And I don't, I honestly, I'm not happy with the way I did it. I think I failed. What would you do differently? Just the way I painted him, it just doesn't, it's not as good as all the other stuff in the painting. The weakest part is my contribution to it, which makes sense. I mean, Turpening is a master. I was a student. <laughs> what a great way to learn though. But yeah, it was very valuable for me to try to do that um, and I got paid. That is wonderful. Yeah. I taught as a student, I was able to teach a lot of master study classes as well. And the way I taught it was I let people pick whatever master they want. If they don't know who, the, who to pick, I gave them several suggestions. There was a list. I was like, here's some good ones I like if you can't pick your own. And they would, they would pick them and then they would print them out. And, um, and I, I think if I taught it now, I'd probably teach it a lot better than back then. It was pretty early on. I was a student. Um, and I had them focus mostly on things like brushmanship, color, shape design. I didn't really focus at all on composition, storytelling, trying to figure out how the artist put things together. It was more about studying the final result rather than the process the artist took to get there which I think is a really important part of doing a study. Yeah. Is figuring out the ingredients and the process to get there so that you can then replicate it. You know, studying the final result I think has value of course, but it's not as much as if you try to really dissect it completely and then maybe even do your own painting in that style. Yes. Two people brought this up. Two people brought this up about wanting to know about process. But but what you just said, though, combines product and process. What I just said? What, what do you mean? What did I say? <laughs> you're going to you, you do a, a painting, you redo that painting in that style or you add something to it, you get a product out right. of it. Right. Yes. Yeah, if you redo your own. But you also went through the process. Yeah. Well, I would start with figuring, you know, try to study the process by actually doing a a you know, a, a copy of the of an of a painting that by that master 
And then once you've done one of theirs, you try to replicate that style or whatever it is that you chose to study from them with your own reference material. Don't, don't use them at all. Only use what you learned from them to apply now to yourself, to your own work. Yes. And that application of the concepts you learned for the master, I think is more valuable than doing the master study itself. I think so too, because now it's moving from study to practice. Yeah. And you know, there's also an emotional thing that goes on that when you choose a master and you do a bunch of studies of that master, say for an hour, and then you play the game, okay, do your own thing, but imitate that master. Yeah. And it, a, a lot of times you're charged up to, but again, the risk of it is that it can be discouraging when you just watch the grown up do that. And now I'm trying to do it and uh, it doesn't look the way I want it to look. It can be, it can be a little hard. Yeah. But to keep doing it, that's, that's how we grow. And I'm sure you've done that, right? Like I know that with your ink sketches, mm -hmm. you always try to imitate some of your or not imitate, but take some of the things that you love about your favorite inkers and yeah. put it into your own work. So, we could show some of your examples and then um, I have an example where I specifically was doing this though. Like there was a, a painting I was doing of my brother and I when we were kids and I had mm -hmm. a black and white photo of us and I wanted to paint it in color and I was at the time I was very new to color still. I was still trying to figure it out and I studied Morgan Weisling's color. I really mm -hmm. enjoyed his cool lights and warm shadows. I was like, wow, like the skin is blue and purple. How, how does he make it still feel like real skin when there's such, such cool colors on the, in the lights? And I thought the effect was amazing. And so, I thought, okay, I'm going to take this black and white photo and I'm going to take Morgan Weissing's colors and, and, and try to apply them to this black and white photo and see if I can make it work. Yes. And I could, I, we could show this or, and provide a link into the show notes to this. Good. But, but I've called the painting Brothers. So, that's what the link wow. is going to be called. I know that was very valuable to me because the things I learned about color from that one painting, I still think about all the time. Yeah. Taking a black and white picture and colorizing it can be great, but do it three different ways. Yeah. Three, three really different ways. And then you'll see that, yeah, I'm going to make the shadow areas really warm, almost red, and then do the opposite of that. And if you do it three different ways, a couple things happen. One is that you see that that was a choice. That was a choice to use that light. And another is that it heightens your sensitivity to how masters, we were always baffled how when certain masters had blue or purple or green on a face, it looked great. We put purple or blue or green on a face and it looked like they had purple or green or blue paint on their face. It didn't look the way it did when Leyendecker did it. Well, that's the challenge. Yeah, we didn't know the logic of what was going on. What was it? Do you remember what you messed up? Was it the values were wrong? No, it was that we, well, the values were wrong too. <laughs> that's usually the problem. If your color looks wrong, it's probably that the value of the color is wrong. But when you've got rim light that is hot yeah. and reflected or fill light that is cold and you put any cold paint, any cold color in that hot rim light, it looks wrong. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, that's what we didn't know because we didn't know the architecture of the head. Ah. 
we weren't thinking about the fact that's facing that way. And that, it seems so simple, but what, what happens when you don't know that stuff? So it was the, uh, the temperature. It was color temperature, which falls under color, which falls under values and planes and forms. So you messed up everything. <laughs> we were doing everything wrong, but we were learning as we went. <laughs> You're making mistakes as a student should do. Good job, Marshall. Yeah, thanks. Someone mentioned that we don't know the process and the reference that the masters used. Yeah. All we have is their final result. Sometimes we have more than that. Sometimes, right. Sometimes we have some concept sketches that they had uh, and that's nice. But I mean, most of the time, I think we don't, right? Like, like how many times have you done a master study where you've looked back at the concept sketches of that artist? rather than just the final result. Right, but we certainly have Michelangelo's preliminary drawings for his finished paintings and so on. And we've got, we we do see that certain pieces went through iterations. And of course, there's a whole book on the uh, photographic reference that Rockwell used. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a good, that's a great resource right there. I, I've studied Rockwell several times and I did many demonstrations in class of Rockwell, mostly to study shape design. That was the thing I chose Rockwell for was shape design and how he exaggerates things just a little bit where it still feels real. Yeah. But it's it's exaggerated a little bit to make it look better than real. Yeah. It's not cartoony yet. It still feels like it's human proportions. But the facial expressions just feel more emotional than real life. And the characters, the body types feel just a little bit more like they should. I love I love Rockwell's shape design, um, and his book is it's perfect to study from because you you can you can look at the photo and you can see how much he exaggerated everything. It's just a little bit, and in what way? What did he choose to exaggerate? That is an amazing book. He says in one of his books, I think it was his autobiography, My Adventures as an Illustrator. I I don't copy photographs, and he of course he didn't. He used them and the comparison between what's in that photograph and what he did shows that his process was searching and there's that picture of him sitting there with all those iterations of the woman's face Yeah, that lets us know this guy took it seriously that you dig under every rock to find out what's under there before you make your final decision. He was very divergent and loved the divergent stage of the creative process. Yeah. Boy, you know, the creative process, we could spend another five minutes on this that I think could be valuable. About how to study the process, the creative process from an artist? Yes. And maybe first we should describe the typical creative process. Okay. I can describe it well for what illustrators have traditionally done. The first stage is idea. The second stage is thumbnail. Sometimes the thumbnail comes before the idea because you get the idea while you're doing the thumbnail. But those happen early on because thumbnails you don't put a lot of time in, so you're laying a lot of eggs, you don't know which ones are going to hatch, and that's the divergent stage. But idea and thumbnail first. Then one of those thumbnails starts to say, pay attention to me. I think you might want to work me uh, further. And then that one gets turned into a study. 
A study is where you're doing, starting to figure out where things go in this composition, what kind of color scheme you might use, how you're going to divide up your lights and darks, what kind of reference you're going to need. Gosh, I don't know what wigs look like from that era. I don't know what these horses look like. And you're going to do the research that leads to a comp. A comp, as they used to call it in illustration, I think still do. A comp is something, a co it means comprehensive rough. It means it's not the finished piece, but we comprehend everything that's going to be in this finished piece. Now, again, Rockwell explains this with lots of examples in the How I Make a Picture book. Uh, and I, I teach it from Mooka, and I teach it from Leyendecker, and I teach it from Wrightson, and I teach it from all sorts of people because we have their preliminary work and we see stage, 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 keep options open until you close, then stage, 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 keep op options open until you finish. And the most important thing about the creative process of all of the wisdom you're going to get from teachers on creativity, the most important thing is to keep it open in the early stages and to close it down gradually. Uh, until finish, not to start too tight, like childhood to grown up. That was a really good explanation of the creative process. Well, thank you, Stan. Now, I can bring in a heavy hitter. Do you know who Saul Bass is? He was a designer of the mid 20th century. Uh, he was a storyboard artist too. He designed the shower scene in Psycho for Hitchcock. He uh, designed, I think he designed the AT&T logo when, you know, the world started going digital. But oh, he designed all sorts of things that were innovative. And uh, Strathmore interviewed him. The paper company? Yeah, the paper company. That interview with him includes encouraging words for people who are new to the process of creating art. Uh, let, let me quote from it. Okay. Strathmore asks Saul Bass, what bit of advice would you give a young designer just out of school? Bass says, students and young designers look at the exceptional work that's being done. What they see is the end product. They are not privy to process. They may have the illusion that these things really spring full-blown out of the head of some designer. That it is a very unsettling perception for young people because they struggle with their work. They have at it. They redo. It gets better. It slips. It gets worse. It comes back. It comes together. But they say to themselves, gee, if it comes so hard and it's so difficult, am I really suited for this? Strathmore asks the next question. But what makes them think it's easy for others? Bass says, one reason is that a really good solution looks inevitable. The fact of the matter is that everybody works hard at it, works very hard at it. And process for the experienced designers is the same as process for the beginning designers. Everybody's working in the quarry. The only difference is, the experienced designer has been around a while and has, been, has an experiential track record. There's less anxiety about the process because you know eventually you're going to get there. You're also a little more sinewy. You've been working out a little more, but the process is the same. Well, that might not be the case that the process is the same because we as beginners usually do discover some things that change it. But I think the point he's making is that it is harder work than anybody outside of the world doing it. 
Anybody outside of professionally creating art, it's much, much, much harder work than any of them imagine it to be. So he's giving consolation that once we accept that it is hard work, then we're in, we're committed, and we recognize it's going to be confusing and how come it's so awful when it was so good just a few hours ago. And to accept that in advance and know that it's going to go through stages and every every work of art has its terrible twos. Every work of art has its adolescence. That is if it's all, all one that uh, spreads out over some time. Yeah, and some are easier to get out of that those terrible twos than others. There's some paintings that I look back and I think I, I never got them out of the terrible twos. They, they, in my mind, they started as these really cool paintings and then I started them and they became, they went through this trouble where I was like, this is really boring and I tried to get them out but I never did and I went all the way to the finish not ever really improving that thing that I didn't like about it in the terrible twos. What stage in the, your training were you when you did that? I think uh, many stages. I think even when I was more of an advanced student. Um, and I don't know, I think maybe it was probably just I was too eager to get to the finish. That's probably why I never got it out of that phase. I kept going even though I knew I haven't really made it not boring yet. I haven't figured out really what composition to to go for to make it more exciting. Yeah. And I just kept going even though I knew it wasn't good yet. It was like, oh, my my colors will fix it. You know, my, my brush, my cool brushmanship will make it look good. And it's like, no, it didn't. A boring composition is a boring composition. Yeah. Stan, I feel it. I know what you mean. And and trying too hard for that finished destination, it's like a journey. And if we're every every few minutes you're saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> yeah. Are we there yet? You are not enjoying that trip. Yeah. But if if in the car for those hours, you forget to ever ask that because you're so involved in what you're doing, the game you're playing or, or whatever else, then it's going to be a more enjoyable trip overall. And so much of it is journey. Yeah. Hey, let me, let me uh, refer to a resource. For the last several years, people have say, been saying, don't miss this show called Abstract. And it might have been the first one of them. It was a focus on designers because uh, their process is so clearly connected with a client and it's like making a movie. You've got definite stages it goes through. Where is this show? It might have been on Netflix, uh, Abstract. And the first one, I think, is a spotlight on Christoph Neiman. I found it. Abstract, the art of design. That episode, Spotlighting Christoph Neiman, is so inspiring. It's, it's interesting. When we were talking about composition, we were talking about symbolism and metaphor. He's a great example of someone who's consciously choosing uh, symbolic imagery that is entertaining and makes you laugh. Uh, but his process is, if that's all you had in your repertoire of masters to study for their process, he would be a good influence on you. Can we get into some specific examples? Like, I think what some students might be thinking right now is we're telling them, choose what to study, what you like about them, and then make sure you study the process. How do I study the process? If I, if I find a painting I really like and I don't have concept sketches, I don't have the reference photo, how do I study that part of it? Now you're asking the question of, who do I study to learn what? Right. 
one of the points that Robert Beverly Hale made in that those three paragraphs about composition in Drawing Lessons from the Great Masters was that if you're going to study composition, you're probably not going to get it from most preliminary drawings. You're not going to get all you need because a lot of times they aren't thinking about composition. They're thinking about a particular pose or a position of the wrist or a draftsmanship problem or a, a anatomical problem. They're thinking about a number of different things. But there comes a point if you're going to study composition, you want to go to finished pieces and see how did this quote inevitable unquote finished composition or what does it offer? Not how did it happen, but what does it offer? So there's one example. Some things you don't go to Doré's engravings to study color because there's no color in them. <laughs> And you don't go to Shel Silverstein's little cartoons to study value placement, although he does. He is aware of his little patches of dark. But we've got to be wise in in doing this, and that's where we're headed next. Who do you study for what? What's what do we first of all? What are this goes back to the list of fundamentals that we mentioned, or does it? Kind of. Well, list your fundamentals again. I break it down into three categories. The first one is technique. That's how you use your pencil or your pen and ink or your watercolor. The second is drafting. That is that I know what this thing is made of. That's anatomy, the how to depict it in space with lines, that's perspective, uh, and how to light it, that's rendering. And those are technical. And then the third is composition. That is that the whole thing has to work as one unit made out of many things, how do I turn it into one sculpture, one painting, one song that I can say is an entire composition that has been composed, it's been arranged, it's been organized. I put those as three different categories, or three different categories of fundamentals, and I know they overlap. Yeah, of course. Te technique is a part of composition, and deep space and shallow space of form uh, is a part of composition. But that is the best I, I can do. And I, as I mentioned, it was never not original with me. I got that from Drew Struzan years ago. So that's how I categorize it. How, how about you? That's a good one. I, I think we talked about this maybe in the last season, right? Where we grouped them all together. But um, when I did colors, or not colors, when I did master studies, um, I was almost always focused on the technique. What, what was the second one? You, you called it- Second uh, one is drafting. Drafting. Yeah, I guess that's those, those two specifically were the ones. And I think those are easier to figure out how to study. It's like you want to study color, pick a painting that you really like the colors of. You want to study um, you know, your brushmanship, pick a painter that has really good brushmanship. Sergeant. Fetching. Fetch, well, yeah, very different types of draftsmanship, both absolutely masterful. Soroya. Yeah. Mary Cassatt. Right. Soroya would also just would be a good one for color. Stan, just when we start mentioning these names, the difficulty is it's like mentioning best friends and people you love and miss. It's like, oh, that's the joy of this is that if you're going to be a cook, you get to taste a lot of great food. Yeah. For technique, brushmanship, you've used that term a couple of times. And and you have consciously copied brushmanship from painters you admired. Yeah. So, specifically with brushmanship, I feel like the, the way to do it is just look at the brush strokes they did and try to pull those same brush strokes. That's the most important thing is can you do that with your hand? Yeah. Do you know how to load the paint on the brush in order to even be able to execute that kind of brush stroke? 
Do you know what kind of canvas you need to have in order to get that dry brush effect? Yeah. Do you know how much oil or, or turpentine or mineral spirits you need to put into your mixture of paint in order to get that nice juicy stroke that then becomes a dry brush as it as it tapers off <laughs> you know do you know how much turpentine to put it into it so that you can put it and then it drips a little bit and then you can smear it with your paper towel there's there's so much to that that just trying to copy these masters you'll learn so much trying to just mimic their brushmanship and their technique like that um that one's easy to figure out how to study it's it's difficult to actually execute it um, but it's fun it's also i think the simplest thing to understand too because it's right there on the surface right it's right there you can see it three or four years old you understand that yeah in in fact there are books on painting techniques of the great masters where the main thing is what oils did they use what pigments did they use how did they uh what what kind of brushes did they use uh what the procedure was that go and it's it's not on how to make a great work of art. It's what the procedure, the technique, the actual pencil to paper uh, was doing. This book that I keep recommending over and over that Susan Meyer revised from Rendering in Pen and Ink by Arthur Guptill. The first part of the book is to learn the technique of pen and ink exercises. The bulk of the book is looking at masters and seeing how they do it. Because once you learn how to use the instrument, you can see how many great masters have used this instrument in remarkable ways, and then you're given permission to find your own remarkable way to apply technique. So there's our first category. And for pen and ink masters, golly, you've got Franklin Booth on one side, who every line is like an engraving, and you've got Heinrich Klei on the other who, as I think George Groves described him as flinging a lasso out to envelop the forms. They're just, they're crazy wild lines. Gerald Scarf, that way, uh, completely different, extreme opposite uses of pen and ink technique. Yeah. Same can be said for watercolor. Same can be said for oil. Same can be said for procreate, right? Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you could do the same thing with digital artists. Sometimes it might be a little bit more difficult to figure out because the 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 amount of tools available digitally, um, I think are a lot more varied. You know, there's hundreds of thousands of different types of Photoshop brushes that an artist could be using in order to get that specific effect. And you might not be able to get that exact brush. That's right. But it doesn't make any difference. Right. You could try to replicate. I mean, you can create your own custom brushes to try to mimic it and get close enough. Yes. I think if you go back to like master oil painters, the amount of materials they use are pretty limited, right? Like we could probably figure out they used some kind of bristle brush with oil paint that had the specific oil, you know. They've done x-rays and analysis of, of so many paintings now that they know exactly what pigment is in there. Yeah. How do you learn watercolor? You learn the materials and then you learn some techniques. There's not more than, what, four, five, six techniques? Some people would reduce it to even fewer than that. You put wet on dry, you put wet into wet, or you put dry on dry. And those are the three great big categories of how you learn watercolor technique. What about dry on wet? Uh, you can do that too. That's, but that would, uh, you know, but you, you never get 
perfectly dry watercolor, right? I'm just being a smart ass. I was trying to see if I could get it down to three categories. And then you're going to be right there to say, hey, wait a second. Hey, hey hold on a second. <laughs> okay, I think we've covered that there are people who play their instrument so well that you say, I just love that violinist and I want to be a violinist. No, I love the guitar. No, I want to sing. And that, that's the surface part of it. That's the technique that you study. It doesn't mean that you're going to make good music, but it might mean that you can play your in instrument accurately and even expressively because you know your instrument so well. So we need to move on from technique to where? You talking about out of your three categories? Yeah. Uh, unless, or is there anything that any of these questions have asked that is relevant to this that we should flesh out? I think maybe what we've said so far is that if you're trying to study process, you can't do that from every artist. Not every artist shows you the process. It's not evident in their final work. But you can study it from some artists. So, pick the artists where, that you can study it from. Some artists have a lot of things written about their process already because other people have studied it and they've written about it. Or the artist themselves have, has written about it. Yeah. Rockwell you brought up where he shows you his reference he, he, um, and he shows you his final and you could see certain things. Uh, and I think he shows some process sketches and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. He so, sure does. So, those you could even if you don't, he doesn't show it to you about the specific painting that you're studying, you could look at the other sketches he did for other paintings and kind of, you know, extrude it from that and think he probably used a similar process for most of his paintings. There was a thing someone said. Here, let me find the quote. Okay, it comes from Noga Koren. Um, Usually, when I want to study a certain artist's work, I look them up on YouTube and I watch a video of them drawing. That way, I can see their process and not have to guess or assume anything. But unless there's a voiceover of the artist talking as they draw, it's hard to understand what makes the drawing painting feel the way it does. How do you recommend approaching the subject? But I, I just, I really like that we are moving into the age where process is becoming way easier to study. Yes. Can you imagine if Rockwell was a YouTuber? <laughs> Or if, you know, Fashion was a YouTuber and we could actually see him applying that those brush strokes that we look at right now and like, how the hell did he do that? We can actually watch him do it, see how he put his paint. How did he, how long did he dry out his paint before he put it on the canvas? Was it two days? Because I think he did that, right? Like he put the paints out on his palette and then he would just leave them there for a while so that they dry up a little bit. And then he'd put them. I think that's what I, I, I think I heard that about him his work but it's like i wish i could see the the dry paint being applied to the canvas how does that look how does it feel but so right now we're moving into that age where if if there's an artist that you know it has to be a current artist that is posting youtube videos but there's so many now that you can find some really good ones and dude that's a great way to study process go watch demos that was what Noman DVDs were about, is that you could buy a DVD and see an artist show their process. I was mentioning Morgan Weisling about color. Mm -hmm. I think I said this before on one of the episodes was how I used to fall asleep to Morgan Weisling's demo. 
<laughs> yeah, you did. I remember that. Yeah. I would only watch like 10, 15 minutes a night because I, I would put it on while I was already tired, but I would just absorb it. And it would it would be the last thing I thought about that day. And it would just, it would slowly just kind of creep into my thinking. Yeah. I also watched that whole thing while I was awake as well. And then the second time I watched it, I would put it on at night. So, you're doing damage control here for having said that you fell asleep to Morgan's demos. <laughs> no, I, damage control. No, I don't think that's wrong at all. Okay. I, I, just, I was just testing you. Just testing you. No, no. I, I, I'm glad I did. I think it was very valuable. I watched it. I watched the whole thing while I was fully awake and conscious. Mm -hmm. And then I liked it so much that I would just constantly put it back on when I was falling asleep. Absorbing it. Yeah. Where was I going with this? Oh, pro the process. Yeah. That, and that helped me figure out um, how he applied, how he thought about color as well because you know how I did that black and white study I talked about with my brother and I uh, where I applied Morgan Weisling's colors to a black and white photograph. Watching him do it, mix his colors. Which ones did he dip into when he was mixing that transition between the lights and the darks, the halftones? Like, how did he mix that colors? And so, I could actually just take his palette, take the exact palette he used and apply it to that painting and, and try to and, and, and mix them in the same way. So, having that video was extremely valuable to me in order to, in order to study that because I had his process. I also used the exact canvas <laughs> that he used. You know, you're bringing the grown up in to see how they make their moves, and then and then you assimilate those moves. Yeah, the canvas has nothing to do with the colors, but still, I was just trying to mimic him as much as possible because it was there, it was available to me in that video. Why not just try to do as much as possible like him? Yeah, and that was before YouTube. Yeah, right now there's YouTube, and now you guys. Have, have no excuse asking, how do I study process? There's one thing that can be confusing here for beginners is a sense that there is some one correct process. And if there's any one correct process, it's divergence to convergence. And that's a great big category of just start out with a lot and then end up with the best. But I always wondered about how Heinrich Klei worked. And I heard a little bit about how he worked from Harold Sieperman, who knew some people who knew more about him. But Claire Windling, who's been influenced by Heinrich Klein, if you don't know Claire Windling's work, uh, you should see Claire Windling's work. She became very well known about the time Frazetta uh, was, was uh, no longer working uh, and died. And she had a style that showed influences oh, of a number of great old French masters, uh, including people like Delacroix. And, and uh, she had some of Heinrich Klei in her, some of Frank Frazetta. But she wrote in the book, Daisies, that came out in 2009, uh, there's a little bit in there about how she works. Listen to this. Wendling prefers the cohesion of a drawing created in a single pass without erasing. She will often redraw a complete image over and over, making changes with each pass until she is satisfied she has reached the final version. She says this technique, while labor-intensive, is her way to, quote, keep my hand loose and to maintain from rough to finish the vitality of the first pass. Quote, when, all, when one is all warmed up with urgency to draw, it can be very pleasant. 
unquote. She is most satisfied with drawings that aren't too clean and feels that when the drawings are too stiff, it is hard not to be stiff with myself. Now, if anybody takes that to mean that you should not erase when you do a drawing, that isn't what it means. It means that she found that she likes one style, one way of working better than another way of working. And for every one of us, it is different. And so every one of us needs to invest time into experimenting with techniques and looking at what different masters do. And when you find masters that excite you for their surface, for their technique, uh, I think it was Teresa who talked about the difference between working from reproductions and seeing originals. She asked, you know, what do you recommend for people who live in areas where there's limited access to master's work? I mean, the answer to that, I think, I think there's only really one answer is you have to work from photographs. If you have no access to originals, you have only one other option. It, unfortunately, yeah. But I mean, I, I'll tell you, like, I have only done one master study from in a museum in my whole life. And it was like, you know, a year, ago, a year and a half ago with Cesar Santos and I recorded that vlog. And even then, we only had like an hour to do that drawing. I, I did more of a sketch. I didn't really do a true master study. I was recording a video and trying to be entertaining and it wasn't. I, I, so, basically, I've never really done a true master study from life other than, you know, copying Jeff Watts's ske quick sketches and um, my, my instructor's drawings. I had those available to me. Uh, but as far as pieces from museums, I didn't either. Even though I live in Southern California where I had a lot of access to it, I didn't do it. And I think most artists don't do it at museums. The only one I know that regularly does it is Cesar Santos. <laughs> right? And I mean, damn, he's... He's he's good, right? Like he maybe it shows. Like maybe we should do more from from museums, but but still, there you can get really good by doing master studies from photographs. It's not a huge. It's it's not such a big disadvantage that you're. Not, it's going to prevent you from getting good. Whoever becomes the very best at their craft in the next ten or fifteen years could be a person who didn't who never worked from originals. Exactly, yeah. And there are a number of people who are going to work from originals and they're not going to get anywhere at that level. So but I'll, I'll tell you, with some things it makes less difference. With some things it's not even important. A lot of pen and ink stuff, you can learn everything you need from reproductions. Uh, but when you do see original pen and inks, we got to see original Windsor McKay's and original, George Harriman's and original, uh, you can see how the pen digs into the paper and there is something kind of exciting about that. But that's more emotional than it is really informative. Uh, you get excited when you see originals. However, when I was an illustration student, we went up to the Illustrators West show in Los Angeles to look at all of these original paintings back in the 70s, late 70s. And we were so blown away by the textures of acrylic paints and watercolors and colored pencil over the top of them, little brush strokes over things. I remember being drunk on it and feeling like I want to go in there every day and examine these surfaces. So again, that was as much as anything else. It was emotionally exciting, but ultimately, you're going to create your own works on your own paper or your own canvas. And one of the great secrets of technique is to romance it, to enjoy it, 
to place those marks on there in ways that you like how they go down, the same way a guitarist learns to do licks that they may have picked up from Jimi Hendrix or B.B. King, but they find a way to do their own licks that come from them. Ultimately, uh, the originals that you're studying are your own. To make them all, you can make them. Well, we've been all over the place and we're an hour into this and we haven't even gotten past tech, uh, process and technique. Um, I only have a, f a few responses I want to read to answer. Should we just move on to one of those? Yeah, let's just move on. This comes from Romana Visanska. In the Czech Republic. She asks, who are the masters to study? What artwork deserves to be called a masterpiece? What is included in studying masters? Is it their learning paths? Prepar anyway, yeah, we already talked about that. Um, she's basically asking, who, who's a master? How do I decide? And I, you said something in the previous episode that I think is pretty much the answer to this is that, and it was related to teachers. If someone is only one chapter ahead of you, is that what you said? Yeah. In, in some book that they're teaching, it's still worth studying from them because they can, if they explain that next chapter to you very well. Yeah. Because they'll help you get through that next chapter. So, a master study doesn't have to be of someone who is considered like one of the ultimate great masters of, of the art world. Um, I think that as long as you know what that person is strong in and you study the correct thing from someone, you don't even have to study a professional artist. If you have a friend who is also a student, but damn, they're really good in their gestures. They're, the gesture studies they've been doing are just way better than yours for some reason. You can study them. You could look at theirs and see why are the, theirs better than yours. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you're not technically studying like a master, but you're learning from someone who has something you can learn from. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the danger is that you might pick someone who has some weaknesses and you might, some, uh, you might absorb some of their weaknesses. So, it's always safer to just pick someone who's known as a great master. There is one way to help cover for this. Okay. Uh, somebody pointed out that people go wrong in many directions. Uh, but that's why when you have several people together, one person might want to go wrong in this direction and someone else is on that team that leans, leans them the other direction. It's why you don't want to choose a single parent, a single master. You want a variety of influences and that way you can choose which ones are better and grow in your test. But we talked about that with art parents. Uh, this, is, this is that the choices themselves are important for the growth. And I mentioned pen and ink masters and, and we looked at Claire Windling's approach to it and you've mentioned, you've mentioned painters and brushmanship. Yeah, and I think it's also just very personal. Someone that you think is worth studying, I might think is complete trash. <laughs> like, there's no way I want to absorb anything from that artist. You know, it, like, it, it, it's very personal. It's about taste. It is. It depends on what you want to do as an artist. You might want to be an abstract artist and I might say, I, I really don't. So, I don't want to study 
who give me some <laughs> give me some abstract i don't want to study picasso yeah i know a lot of people who don't like picasso no i i appreciate his work but i don't want to do any master studies of his stuff i personally don't i'm not drawn to do work like him right that's not to put down any of his contributions to the to you know to the art world it's simply that i don't want to do that and you might you might see his abstractions as absolutely inspiring and you want to inject some of that into your own work and that's perfectly fine. So, who is a master worth studying? It's completely up to you. Yes. If you want some advice, go to people that have got some experience with who's studied which masters and copied which masters. That's why we're here. It's our function today on the Draftsman Podcast to let those who take the time to sit and listen to us that they'll have some names and some direction. Yeah. And we've mentioned many, many artists in this episode. Art parents and, uh, and get motivated have been like our main things. Oh, yeah. The art parents episode alone. Go to that one if you want a list. But this episode is going to have some really long show notes, I believe. It's just going to be a giant list of artists and resources. You want to move on to the next question I've written down here? Yeah, let's move on to the next one. Jim A says, when studying masters, I want to know as much as possible about the, about the thought process of the sequence of decisions that the artist makes when creating artwork. So, studying masters is about discovering a way of thinking as well as ex examining a method or style. Jim A also says, it feels like we're moving into a new golden age because there are so many opportunities to literally look over the shoulder of an artist as they work. Not only that, but they can narrate what they're thinking at that time. This is why online courses and live demonstrations are so useful. A third thing he says, after studying the masters and making master copies, a great exercise is to keep their methods in mind and try to create something completely new. Yeah. We said, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jim, Jim did our episode before us. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Those were all, all of those are great contributions. Um, Okay, let's move on to uh, Lai Yu Swan. He has three questions. First one, do you think old master's works are, worth, are more worth studying than modern ones? I think we disagree about this, Marshall. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not even interested in answering that question. Oh, come that, has, on. that has been asked so many times and here is my question to that question. Why is that important to you? Well, they want to choose. Maybe here, maybe this is why. Maybe he's or he or she, I don't know, maybe he's more drawn to more modern works, but he feels guilty for not studying old masters. And he wants to know if it's okay that he just studies people he sees on Instagram. Maybe that that's well, I don't know if that's what it, the case is, but yeah, but you know, it's sort of like is vitamin D and fiber better? than vitamin C and protein? It's like, I, I don't want to play that game. <laughs> I think that if you, are, if you are looking at everything that's happening right now and you're not paying attention to the great stuff that's happened in the past, you've got a vitamin D deficiency and that you should put vitamin D and fiber into your diet. Okay. So, the answer is both are good. 
Yeah, they're both good, but the, the you what you don't want to tell people, what you don't want to tell young people is only look at the stuff that's happening now, man. That's the thing that you care about is what's happening now because you're going into a, a field and you got to know the industry because they all do that anyway. So there's no need to admonish people to pay attention to their favorite rock star artists now. The need is to say, let's pull back and get some context. Why not just balance it out? Do both. Yeah, that's right. Pick, pick from both pools. Yeah. Should a beginner focus more on studying reality, like still lives, models, photos, or master's works? Again, I think your, your answer, both, right? <laughs> it's not this or that, it's both. Uh, a beginner, however, the question was specific, a beginner. Personally, I do have a preference. I think a beginner should study more from life. Okay, tell us why. Because it's easier to learn from life than from masterworks. Masterworks take some experience to be able to decipher. It's a puzzle that you're not ready for yet. At least maybe not all. Maybe some masterworks are very simple and you could you could figure them out right away. But a lot of times like what you're going to be studying from masters are things like composition or brushmanship or color. It's like if you're a beginner, that's not what you're studying. If you're a beginner, you need to figure out proportions and how to use your pencil. Um, just train your eye to see things correctly. Um, learn how to how light on form works. Figure out the concepts of perspective. You're not going to be able to learn perspective from master works if you haven't studied some theories first. Yeah, and gone out and just like observed the world. And just done some sketches on your own. That's why I think it's it's easier to learn fundamental principles from life than from master studies. But that maybe I don't know. Am I wrong? I think the opposite of that. Really? Okay. If you want to learn composition, go to. Well, but you're not a beginner. Why are you learning composition? But no, what I'm saying you're a beginner. <laughs> if you want to yeah. learn composition, go to the stream and look at how the water moves through the rocks. Uh, light a match and watch how the match gets bigger and smaller. Yeah, so that's life. Notice that the sun and the moon and the stars are of different ratios. How do I affect my drawing that way? It's you're going to nature. It's it's very hard for a lot of people to say, uh, I look at the stars and I come up with pictures of children's, children playing. But if you are studying masterpieces of children playing, you start to get more concrete ideas that are more tangible. Okay, can you now apply that to something that a beginner would actually be studying? Yeah. I, my simple brain doesn't con can't connect the dots. Because you're talking about composition, which I feel like is a more advanced topic. Look, at, look around in life and see how many X, Y, and Z lines there are. You're going to learn draftsmanship. It's all about X, Y, and Z. It's all about height, width, and depth. And those axes in space. Look around and see how many there are. And you might see it, but boy, that doesn't help you much to do a drawing. Until you've looked at some drawings where you see, oh, okay, they're carrying through those lines. They're actually imagining those are going back to vanishing points. And when they tip this way, they don't go down to the horizon line. And you are seeing work where the problem has been solved enough to clarify what the problem is. Whereas life is so complex, 
storytellers, you know, storytelling teachers, go to life, go to life, go to life, look at your parents, look at your family and all that. That's really valuable. It might be some of the most valuable stuff there is, is to go to your life for your stories. But until you've had somebody give you an example of a well-crafted story that pays off at the end, you might put in way too much detail about life. Or you might make it a confusing story until you've got an example of someone who's crafted it down to simplicity. Say, I get it. That makes that a strong story. And uh, I, I, I am not against, I'm not for one or the other. But I do think that telling people to study composition, for example, from studying nature confuses more students than it clarifies. But if you say, look how you divide up the space with that kind of thing, at least they've got something to grip. Now, you, you bring up a, a good point that certain master's works or, or not even master's, just any instructor's demonstration could even, it, it simplifies the concept down so that you could see those X, Y, and Z lines more clearly than if you look at nature. Yes. So, that makes, that makes sense. Um, so, I think that if you do, as a beginner, study masters, there's, you have to pick wisely. You, you know, th there, there's some masters you can pick that you're just not ready for. In fact, I think most of them you're probably not ready for as a beginner. Um, and so, when you are studying perspective and you want to know which artist to study for perspective, I, I think it's going to be hard for an artist to go out and do that on their own. They're going to need to ask someone, hey, I'm trying to figure out perspective. Who should I look at? And I think most of the time, it's not going to, the, the best artwork to look at isn't going to be finished drawings or paintings. It's going to be instructor drawings right. and painting. If you're trying to study structure, you're not going to look at a, a painting at a museum. You're going to look at Bridgman's drawings. Oh, yeah. Right? Like that's much better to look at than a, a final masterpiece. Yeah. You know, that's not drawing from life. That's drawing from masters. But they're masters that have simplify their drawings down to teach us specific concepts. And those are the ones that the beginners should focus on, in my opinion. Well, if a person tries to study light from what's around them, light is coming from so many directions that all they're going to be is confused. I was confused. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what that's going on. Bernie Wrightson learned to draw the way he drew from three sources that he cited. One was the, was John Nagy's America's television art instructor who showed how to light a ball and a, a block and that kind of thing. The other was the famous artist mail order school. And then the third that he mentioned to my students was the early universal horror films, the ones from the early 1930s. Now, the two art instructors, or the, the, the art instruction he got was one kind of teaching. But when you're looking at those black and white early 1930s films, you're seeing strong key light and often fill light. It's classic Renaissance lighting. And that's harder to learn it from until you've had somebody show you how to shade a ball and move the core shadow around. But once you know that, studying those old movies is a step towards studying life. 
because the lighting is more distilled, designed for effect than the room that you're sitting in right now, looking out, trying to make sense out of it. So that's why I think, and particularly for drafting, particularly for learning anatomy and perspective and rendering, that going to teachers, gosh, if you're going to learn perspective, you look, what drawings, what masters do you look at? You look at Durer's drawings, you look at Scott Robertson's drawings, you look at Feng Zhu's drawings, because they're going to show you all the hidden lines. Okay, they opened up what they were thinking underneath the hood, and they talk about it in their demos. So, yes, that's learning from masters as opposed to trying to figure out perspective all the way from scratch like they did in Florence 600 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I think now I've kind of changed my answer, not to your answer, but to basically bo it's both. You got to know when you need a dose of one or the other, and it's when you've spent too much time. Oh gosh, somebody uh, somebody posted this. I want to get this quote from uh, from Da Vinci. Okay, this is Leonardo Da Vinci. Painting declines and deteriorates from age to age, when painters have no other standard than paintings already done. Hence, the painter will produce pictures of small merit if he takes for his standard the pictures of others. That's the argument against masters. So where do you go when you're at that point? That's when you go to nature. That's when you go to the bigger design behind the smaller artists. Because you've, you've exhausted what the artists are going to do. Where do you go for inspiration? Now you're going to go to fire. Now you're going to go to water. Now you're going to go to weather. Now you're going to go to the elements. Now you're going to go to things that are are bigger than any particular picture maker. Yeah, I don't know if that applies to beginners, though, right? No, I don't, I don't think it does. I think it's too hard for beginners. Yeah, it's to, very difficult to do that. Yeah, that, that's why my opinion goes that way. Looking back at, for example, how I studied animation, I, I see that I actually did both. I was studying from masters and from life because for example just even just a very simple thing like a bouncing ball right the thing that everyone starts with when i was doing my game of pool animation which is just a bunch of billiard balls bouncing around fighting each other i studied cam frame by frame camera movement or captures of um actual bouncing balls and other squash and stretch footage of various things, water balloons. But I also went to Pixar shorts and I studied those frame by frame. Yeah. Because they exaggerated it. They added style to reality. And so it doesn't just, you're not just studying physics and how, how gravity works and how a ball falls and bounces off the ground. But also how you can interpret that as an artist and push it in ways that look more dynamic when seen in a cartoon and how you can take those principles and apply them to a living creature like a bird. Have you ever seen For the Birds? It's a Pixar yes, short. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. I stud oh my God, I studied that short so much. Oh, the sense of elasticity and weight and, and yeah, yeah. And, and, and emotion too. Exactly. Those birds are just little balls. There's no gesture. Like, 
the way we think of gesture in a human body where there's like motion rhythm going through the curvature of the spine as it continues into the quads and into the back of the calf like you don't have that in the these bird balls there's just a big sphere but they have so much they're so dynamic and there's so much emotion in them how did they do that and so that's what i studied frame by frame how do they de- deform these birds in order to give off that feeling and so, yeah, the combination of those two, I think, was ex- extremely useful for studying and something as like a bouncing ball. And then I went and I applied that to my game of pool. I, I don't, I was very new at it still, so it's not, I didn't do it well. Yeah, but you were learning. Uh, it, this brings up another thing of micro and macro. Yeah. Macro means that you're seeing, you're bringing the camera up and seeing the whole landscape. The most macro thing you want to do is to see your life in the context of history and then you'll see your career, you're trying to get your skills, you hope to get work, you hope to keep your career, you hope to grow it, those kind of things. That's a great big view of of your life. And then at some point you say, I had my pen and ink stage, my watercolor stage, my oil painting stage, I moved to digital, and then I went back to doing work just for myself. You're starting to break it down. Eventually you get down to the smallest thing. The most micro thing is your technique, how you're going to put the individual strokes or or the brush marks onto the paper. That's what we started with. Then we went to drafting, which is a bit bigger. This is that I know form and I know how to create out of imagination. I know how to interpret planes and those kind of things. That's a bit bigger. Uh, The biggest things of these are composition and storytelling. Because composition is where we're getting up over the whole piece and saying, does the whole piece hold together? That is why Kimo Nicolaides has uh, recommendations for how to do, how to study from masters. And it's specifically uh, in, in that exercise, it is to study their compositions. He treats composition as if it's gesture. He wants you to go into that and move around it where your eye follows paths to sensitize oneself to the abstract pattern of the picture. That's why thumbnails, comp studies, making them small, the smaller they are, the bigger problems you're solving. Composition is a macro study. Now, I want to say something about it here because Jim talked about how he wished he could get inside the thought process of, say, a great composer. You know what happens when you get inside the thought process of a great composer? I've done it a number of times by being around people who compose marvelously and interviewing them formally while they're working and stopping them regularly saying, what were you thinking there? Why did you just choose to do that? Why did you erase that? Why did you decide to pull it out there further? That sounds so annoying. (laughs) But if that's what the purpose is, this is demos for students. This is a class, yeah. You'll get a stop and and sometimes there will be a reason. Because this over here was costing so much attention that I needed this to help balance it out. That there is a thought process going on. But as often as not, I would get the answer, it just felt right to me. And so it's not so much a thought process as it is a feel process. Both go on. There is analysis as one makes decisions. But it is out of instinct that great compositional choices are made, which is why when we talked about harmonic armatures and why I think they're overrated, is that who's going to do a great work of art because 
they connected with the harmonic armature. A person is more likely to do a great work of art because they went with their gut and their gut was right under that instance, which means a great way to practice composition is through improvisation. A lot of improvisation so they start to get in touch with what your instincts are. Yeah, and they've developed their gut. That's right. A beginner could trust their gut and get nowhere. The point is as a student is to develop your gut so that you can trust it and then by the time you consider yourself, you know, a professional and you're experienced, um, you're, there, there's no thought process anymore. You're, you're just going through a bunch of gut trusting <laughs> steps. Y yes. When, when a musician plays an amazing arpeggio, they aren't thinking of every individual note. And by that time, they aren't even really thinking. Yeah. You could just be thinking about something else and just draw and it'll come out really good. Yeah. Jeff Watts could be talking about something completely unrelated to drawing. And that's where his brain is. But at the same time, he's drawing and it's, it's just as good as if he's completely focused on the drawing. He's gotten that good at just drawing while talking about a completely irrelevant topic. So, th that's where it's like when your gut is developed, your intuition just kind of guides your hand and you're not thinking about it. Yeah. And that's going to bring us to our last discipline, I think, which is that when the technique is all absorbed, the drafting is all absorbed, and even the compositional sensibilities are all absorbed. What is it that the artist is going to be thinking about? Maybe what's going on in that picture. Maybe what that person is doing, how they're responding and reacting, and we call that storytelling, uh, building a scene, making something happen that we get engaged with it. Now, that's macro too. That's uh, when you uh, describe the Pixar short mm -hmm. of, of the birds, the macro thing is that it's a story that goes from beginning to end and it has a flip-flop and irony at the end that's satisfying. That's a macro view of the story. Yeah. What's a micro view? The frame-by-frame -frame analysis that you noticed how it changes this much, they add a little motion blur, it changes a little less on this one. That is the micro view. And the mi micro and macro are very important in, in any discipline. And the coming up with lots of ideas and being free with them, diverging, spontaneous, improvising, uh, going with your gut is important. And then finally, being critical enough and analytical enough to know this is the thing that we finish with. And uh, who, would we, who would you send people to for uh, who would you send people to for storytelling? Depends on the medium of storytelling can have so many different mediums. Yeah. I don't consider myself a good storyteller. So, you're asking the wrong person here. Uh, so, I, I don't know if I've studied it enough. <laughs> the first person I think I would be probably the first person you think of because in the 20th century as a single picture maker. You're talking about Rockwell? It, Rockwell was a great storyteller and also Rockwell said in his book that every decision he makes in that painting, every decision has one supreme purpose to tell a story. So, that's what he's filtering everything through is that this is an entertaining scenario and plus he's great at everything else. So, of course, he would be in there but Gary Larson with the Far Side comics and cartoonists galore. Cartoonists are also good to study for drafting because a cartoonist knows how to turn form around. The classic cartoonists really knew how to do that and they simplified it so much. But uh, 
you go to movies as much as anything else. Yeah, movies are a great way to do it with you know sequentially. Yeah. Similar with comics. If you're trying to do a story within one single painting, that would be someone like Rockwell. N.C. Wyeth and Howard Pyle were very good at it too, but they were understated and they were very different in how they approached it than Rockwell. But still, they were storytellers, but they were storytellers where you're reading the book. The book is going to tell you the story. I'm not going to tell you the story. I'm going to shine some light into the cracks that the story doesn't show you and see what that might have looked like to expand the story a bit. But storytelling is a huge subject. And where do you go for storytelling? Well, that's, that's a whole other podcast. It's okay. Peter Cohen asks, what are some artists or even better specific images that you all have learned from the most? A Bridgman head with the blocky cheeks and the blocky forehead and reducing it to simple planes. I learned more about head structure from that single drawing than I did from all of the analysis of photographs and all of the painting stuff that was too complex because that boils it down to the architecture of the head. Do you have one like that? Mine would probably be Loomis's Loomis head. Yeah. I've studied that one probably the most, probably because I, I taught it extensively. Yeah. Um, as far as a single image, there is one where it's a three-quarter view of the Loomis head by Loomis that I just, I dissected, yeah. Yeah. We, we both chose uh, ones that teach uh, drafting too. Well, of course. Because that, <laughs> that's what this podcast is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we both chose head, a head. Yeah. Because yeah. everybody has one. Yeah. I mean, portrait is, is like, you can't avoid studying that as an artist. You, you, can't, you can actually avoid it. You can, Starting I guess so. Yeah, People do all the time. Yeah. Well, okay, sure. Let's end then with uh, with just a little reorientation. Do we need to? We are all beginners at some point, so we need to choose masters, grown-ups to learn from. Uh -huh. And some will be good at teaching us one thing, and some will be good at teaching us another thing. And some of them are so admirable, but they don't really talk much about what they do, but we just observe them and see if we can teach ourselves from them. But the whole idea of learning from masters by studying and copying them has been a theme that we've started with since the Art Parents episode. And it's one of the most exciting things I know about training is that you get to choose the masters that you want to grow up to be like, and you get to study from them. And if you've got a teacher who's helping you say, look here, look here, look here, for this. I hope we did some of that in here. We won't, we didn't do nearly as much as what will happen in your life in the coming days or weeks or months as people start discussing this and choosing their favorites. Stan, yeah. good spending all of this time with you talking about masters. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us. This was fun. Okay, guys, thank you for joining. Give us those TikToks and, uh, the likes and subscribes. Make sure if you want to watch this that you go to our new Draftsman channel. Yeah. It's not that new anymore. We're like 10, 12 episodes in, but that's it. Bye, guys. See you next time. See ya.